Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. Ellis Martin may have a financial position in issues mentioned on this program. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. In this segment recorded on June 29, 2012, join me for a conversation with a frequent guest of the show, David Morgan, the Silver Guru, an expert on money, metals, and mining, also a lecturer and an author. Mr. Morgan has written Get the Skinny on Silver Investing, available on Amazon.com. His website is themorganreport.com. Today, he brings an esteemed colleague of his to the show, Paul Mlajenovic. Mr. Mlajenovic is a certified financial planner writer, speaker, and author of Stock Investing for Dummies, as well as other books. His website is ravingcapitalist.com. He hosts business and financial seminars, as well as tutorials that you can find linked on the website. Paul and David, thanks for joining me today on the program. Uh, My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. David, you called me yesterday and had mentioned that you had a conversation with Paul that was worth taking to our audience. Do you want to begin? I do. I'm going to give some background on Paul. He's responsible for writing Precious Metals Investing for Dummies, a couple more along those lines. He's uh, well regarded as an author. He's also, I think, and more importantly, seen firsthand what goes on in a socialistic government. And because of that, he basically moved to the United States, and I, again, learned about Paul and his story very early on, and as things have progressed down the quote-unquote progressive path, meaning more and more toward a socialistic environment, Paul has become more and more upset, and this uh, Obamacare thing was sort of a straw that broke the camel's back, and of course I'm speaking for Paul, and he could correct me on this, but he was pretty taken back by it because he's seen what's taking place here in the United States. I thought, you know what, people need to hear the real facts because there's a lot of people in the precious metals community that really don't understand what's really going on and what does take place. So I will get off my long intro to Paul, turn it over, and uh, let me know if I misquoted anything and let us know what got you so upset about the Obamacare situation. First of all, thank you kindly. I think you did a great job. I really appreciate it, and and I'm grateful for being on your program, Ellis. Thank you kindly for uh, this uh, wonderful platform. For me, the bottom line is, you know, look, I, I came from a communist country, so I'm very familiar with socialism. Above and beyond leaving it and being a student of it all my life, I'm now 53, so I count for a lot for what I'm talking about. And I've come to learn about how statism, in my case, it was the extreme form, communism, and the idea about socialistic practices, how it runs industries. I've come to learn that a lot of this is what ends up destroying prosperity. My experience back then help me to understand how policies work both for the good and for the bad. You know, as David knows, I do a lot of stuff on the internet where I've given my projections and, you know, for the most part, you know, a lot of easy predictions that I thought they came true when I got my clients out of the housing market because I saw that government, 
statism injected itself and it made at first boom, but ultimately collapsed. Yesterday, I found it to be a very frightening event with Obamacare being upheld by the Supreme Court because never mind if you're conservative or liberal, never mind about what your political view is about this, and you heard a lot of pundits yesterday, both pro and con, and a lot that don't know. The bottom line is, is that when you have this kind of invasive statism, you're going to cause much more trouble than you're going to really cure. And let's face it, I mean, in Yugoslavia, every communist country I ever knew always promised you free health care, basically. But free doesn't mean you get your hands on it. It means you don't pay for it, but it also means you don't get it. And the thing is, when I hear people talking about Obamacare, the one thing they keep on misunderstanding about this is that, look, health care is an economic good. It's like a commodity. So basically, it's subject to supply and demand. And when you put government into the mix, you basically warp and imbalance supply and demand, where the end result is you have catastrophe. I mean, we're all familiar with Greece and so many other venues out there where they're collapsing. People forget it because all of this is an extreme form of statism. Big government is not an engine of production. It's an engine of consumption. But the bottom line is, to me, Yesterday, I saw it as a frightening extension of statism, which would ruin supply and demand, which basically, if this thing is not changed or modified or repealed, what we witnessed yesterday was putting health care on the long, declining path toward destruction. Essentially, the U.S. government has taken over the auto industry, banking, and now the health care system. What's left? You, you find out that the last vestiges of uh, individual liberty are remaining. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. And I know Dave is also, you know, self-employed as well. And we basically work hard to do what? Produce and make more of the fruits of our labor available to ourselves while the, you know, and our families while we're serving customers. And as government keeps on growing, it starts to crowd out the very things that we do. And the thing is, is that in government, it has to rely on a healthy economy if it's going to succeed. So in many respects, government... From a functional sense, and I hate to put it this way, but from a functional sense, government is like a cancer on a good body. If the body is healthy, everybody will survive, even the cancer. But if the cancer overpowers the body that it's living on, then the body dies and the cancer itself dies. That's like a stark example, I realize that. The point is that if government grows too big, it's not only bad for the economy, but it's bad for government, and it's also bad for the people who are dependent on government. This is an important point. There is a government in power that the people elected. The people made a choice, and these are the consequences of that choice. Well, at the very least, I always tell people that I wish that the, political, the, the debate would one day get to the point where people are arguing between small government or smaller government. And I think in the last 50 years, the political parties, the debate was, do you choose between big government and bigger government? But we've crossed the line where now the debts are too heavy to sustain. Government is even collapsing of its own weight. Look at the, the recent news. Stockton, California, is filed for bankruptcy because it grew beyond its ability to take care of itself, and the taxpayers in that town can't bear the weight anymore. So you're going to see a lot of examples of this where you cannot sustain the stuff anymore. Consumption can't be sustained without production, and production is being harmed because they raise taxes and put more restrictions on those things that are necessary in the economy to keep going, so you can pay for all of this. This is an important point, and we're crossing into the line. We're not talking now about a possible double-digit recession. I think since 2008, we've been in a single-dip depression. People will pay for it dearly because of all the political functions and malfunctions that have been going on since 2008 and beyond. David, any comments, questions? First of all, on the uh, comment side, when I was in uh, Beijing, China, and met with the Mining Bureau, 
they were, of course, very much under a socialistic situation. And what I found fascinating was how fair it was, because, you know, the idea or the ideal being that, you know, everyone wants fairness, you know, equality, everyone's equal. And, of course, those words sound good. In fact, they sound very similar to the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. But coming back to the point, the Mining Bureau, in the old days, what they would do is they had a set amount of money that was dictated by government, and they took that amount and they divided it by the number of mining projects that existed. So for a quick example, let's just say that there was $1,000 in 10 mining projects, so everyone got $100. It's the idea I want to make clear, so the numbers are immaterial just to give you the idea. But everyone got the equal amount of money. That sounds fair, doesn't it? But think it through. What this means is that mining projects that had absolutely no merit whatsoever of ever becoming economic, producing a profit, getting metal or potash or whatever it was out of the ground, at an economic value, got the same amount of money that a project that had true merit of real size and economic viability received. And the money was so small that no one could really do anything. So everyone got equally treated, fair, 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 but nothing got produced. Now let's go to the free market model. The free market model, you go out and you discover something. The market decides whether it's economic or not. And in most cases, the market gets it right. And so the person or people that find and develop a mining project that's profitable get rewarded, and people share in those profits, and the projects that fail, fail. And that's what it's all about. And that's actually the way that the quote-unquote communist situation is today. It's changed radically from the way it used to be. So this idea of fairness and everyone getting the same thing is ridiculous when you look at it from the way the world really works. The way the world really works is that you have to go out, you have to, in the mining instance, you have to go out, find it, produce it, make a profit on it, and those that invest share in a profit. So that's one example. So that's one I wanted to comment on, because, Paul, I know um, that we think a lot alike. So with the follow-up question, I like to backtrack and go back into your past and explain what it was like growing up under communism and what you saw, how vibrant or non-vibrant was it, uh, what kind of black market were there, what did you got your parents worry about, what were your concerns, and what were your thoughts about why you wanted to get out of there and get to the United States? I was a young boy at the time. My parents, who had to you know, do the most suffering, and they did whatever they could to get out, and we ended up leaving in 1963. And ironically, part of the impetus was that I was very ill at the time, too. And the interesting thing is that all the free healthcare in Yugoslavia was not able to help me. So fortunately, doctors and, you know, this, this wretched capitalist system saved me when I got over here. So, <laughs> you know, it's really quite interesting because people have to understand about the difference there. I mean, in Yugoslavia, according to law, everybody got basically equal access to health care and provided. Everybody was guaranteed this and guaranteed that. It only worked in someone's imagination because in reality, all communism, which is just an extreme, hardcore version of socialism, all this stuff really produces at the tail end is poverty and oppression. Like right now, we're watching Europe, and it's amazing how many examples you see about this. I mean, my country was Yugoslavia. My country collapsed into oblivion in 1994, and fortunately, I was able to watch safely from a distance in America 
watching it go on, even though I had, still had family, like in Belgrade, etc. And the thing is, is that communism only produces poverty and oppression, and they wanted to do their own version of stimulus in 1993, when they tried to print up, you know, literally millions of dinar, the then Yugoslavian currency, and all they really produced was a hyperinflation. So even though there was a wretched poverty and grinding conditions throughout all the money you produced at the time, whatever they did for the printing press, the actual printing press versus today when we use, uh, you know, a few clicks of the mouse stroke. And the thing is, you know, all that money, what did it produce? It didn't produce prosperity. It just produced inflationary prices. So now people not only couldn't eat what they wanted, they couldn't even afford at that point. So economic disintegration then led into social disintegration, which became civil war, and it collapsed. And the thing is, the same recipe is being played out elsewhere. Look at Greece. Look at these other ones. You know, when you have communism and government running things and you don't allow supply and demand and the free interplay of the marketplace be able to allocate resources properly, you get to a point where you have breakdown, chaos, and ultimately collapse until the slate is cleared. History keeps on repeating. This is nothing new that's going on right now. And what are we doing in America? Trillions of new debt more restraints on production, We're trying to reward people more on the consumption side, you're slowly grinding in the same direction, and it's not going to look good at the tail end of this. Are we seeing economic civil war happening in the West? Well, when you say economic civil war, presuming what? Who is jockeying for more resources for their country? Are we seeing class warfare in government? You're already seeing it to a great extent. I was watching Greece to whatever extent I could. Now those people are fighting for things, everything from food supplies to medical supplies. And it, the breakdown is just spectacular, and thank God we're watching from a distance. But it's going to happen across the board. Those governments, the only thing they seem to be able to produce is more debt and more currency. But the thing is, you cannot automatically press a few clicks and all of a sudden make more natural resources and more material goods more abundant. There is a breakdown, and you're going to see more conflict over natural resources, without a doubt, even among countries that used to be before allies. Because the European Union is really just an artificial configuration where you're shoving countries together who are really very distinct and different. So you're going to see more friction and more conflict, without a doubt, unfortunately. Now, your website is called ravingcapitalist.com, and David alluded to China earlier. Do we have capitalism in China that is, in fact, successful? Well, the thing is, they're allowing capitalism to a great extent, and to a different extent to what we do here in America. I mean, uh, over there... The government is still, by and large, communist, but they are, have been, for the most part, keeping their hands off the systems over there. But I also think that it's creating a lot of abuse as well. I have boys, and they still the level where they enjoy a toy or two. And I think a lot of uh, what they're doing over there is stuff that I don't agree with. They create toys that are very toxic in nature. In their drive to become uh, producers and controllers of resources, this is going to be causing a lot of backlash as well. I think there will be great problems. Uh, with China in the next few years, especially since they're developing a military. So I think it's going to be a, a very difficult realm. And for me, when I call myself a raving capitalist, I mean, I, I try to tell people the difference between capitalism and socialism. And I think capitalism is about mutual, voluntary exchange. Typically, you know, you go to a store and buy stuff, so there's mutual exchange, so there's social cooperation involved. Who could be against that? I became a raving capitalist because I saw the real side of socialism and communism. All of these things are based on coercion, control, and confiscation. It's not based on a mutual exchange. It's based about, basically about you know, thievery, control, you know, etc. So it's not a place that's going to grow and become more prosperous. It's just going to end up in where all things result. <laughs> you know, when you're talking about Athens, same policies beget 
decline and collapse. So watch out for that. Speaking of coercion, confiscation, and taxation, Obamacare is supposedly going to be enforced through the IRS. I had a friend text me yesterday complaining she was going to have trouble paying for mandatory health care. Is this coercion here? Oh, without a doubt. What is a tax? A tax is not mutual exchange. It's not like if the IRS sends you a marketing letter and you say, nah, I feel ignore it. You know, you better respond and ante up on whatever the uh, amount is. Otherwise, coercion means things such as closing down your business or things that are far worse in nature. You can easily label Obamacare as probably the largest tax increase in the history of the world at this point. When you look at the numbers, you're talking about a half trillion dollars in taxes. And that's not the total. That's the first major bill when the first full year hits, half a trillion. And then it's going to get even worse down the road. So whatever people think they're going to get from Obamacare, I think they're going to be in for a rude awakening. Because if you're going to harm the economy with taxation, that means the economy cannot be able to keep affording the other things that it'll need, among them health care. So it's going to cause a, a, a tremendous breakdown in health care specifically, but a great breakdown in the economy in general. David, do you think Obamacare's ratification now by the Supreme Court and this perceived economic hit is a factor in the rally we're seeing in today's gold price? Uh, it could be a factor. In fact, I think it probably is. I think more importantly for today as we're doing this interview, it's probably the fact that the Eurozone continues to waddle around and not come to any really meaningful conclusion on how they're going to deal with these debt burdens. And there is no way out at this point. I mean, it's mathematically impossible to get out of the debt situation in Europe. It's mathematically impossible to get out of the debt situation in the United States. I think most people miss, because they don't really understand how government functions, is that the government doesn't really provide anything. They'll, of course, argue with hearing that and say, well, wait a minute, the government's going to provide this health care for everyone. But by providing that, it's not the government that's providing it. It's actually the citizenry that's providing it. So the government is actually a huge transfer agent. They're taking money from the producers, and they're giving it to everybody, quote-unquote, equally. Well, how is it fair or equal when a lot of the population doesn't work at all, or they're dependent on government and government alone to be able to eat and, and live, etc.? This dependency or entitlement idea that started primarily under the Johnson administration, noted as guns and butter, where we could have war and hand out huge social welfare programs, doesn't work. It doesn't work. It might work in the short run, but it doesn't work in the long run. And now we're at the long run. We hit the long run quite some time ago in reality, meaning that if every American ponied up their quote-unquote fair share, it's impossible. There's not enough of a monetary base if everyone sent in all their assets money-wise to Washington, D.C. You still couldn't dent the deficit. And so when you get this free stuff, it's being paid for. It's being paid for by you for the most part. And that's what people don't understand. They think that they're getting something for nothing. No, there's a huge price to pay. And the ultimate price has been shown throughout history again and again and again, and that is you get a deterioration in the moral structure of the society, you get a deterioration in the living standard of the society, and you also get a deterioration in the educational base. So all the things that make an economy strong and healthy go away, and all the things that are cited to a decline are what happens in a socialistic environment. In fact, if you look back at the Roman Empire, there's lots of causes of why that happened. I'd argue it was primarily the monetary case that caused a lot of the other problems to manifest. But at the very end, everyone was wanting to become a Roman citizen. Why? Because they got something for nothing. That was the perception. They got free bread and circuses. The government knew 
that for in order to keep the society going a little longer than perhaps it could have, otherwise they had to provide some kind of entertainment, which was, of course, the gladiator shows, everything went on the Coliseum, and provide this free bread. And that kept the populace distracted from the fact that the monetary base had been debased to such a level that basically the money was becoming more and more worthless all the time to what ultimately became worthless altogether. And this, again, is kind of a metaphor for what's going on in the United States with all that goes on to distract us and the mainstream media really not doing a fair or honest job of telling the people the truth. What's the real return on investment for this taxation, Paul? You're going to dispense services in some way, but I, I, I think the point that, that I, I love to tell people, and I try to make it as simple so that even a college professor can understand. Look, every successful economy has to have a balance of consumption and production. In other words, a good successful economy goes forward with supply and demand. You know, and that's engendered in what? Consumption and production. For all the consumption that you want, whatever we want, whether it's food or whatever, whether it's bread or circuses or anything else for that matter, or health care, you need production as well. And the thing is, an economy can tolerate a certain amount of public assistance. Public at large has no problem paying taxes to help dispense things such as, you know, mechanism to survive and even survive comfortably for lots of people. I mean, the poor in America are uh, actually, quote-unquote, richer than the poor in most places of the world. So in terms of dispensing services, we do that. But you're getting to the point now where consumption and production has been highly impaired. When the government spends beyond its means, what you're talking about is government is an engine of consumption. So what happens here is you have more and more people who consume more and more people who are dependent, but you have now a breakdown where there's less and less people being able to produce and to provide. And this is at the heart of the problem right now. A lot of businesses are closing shop. I saw a recent statistic that said 23% of most small businesses, the owners can't even pay themselves. And on the flip side, you now have it where you have record numbers of people who are unemployed, record numbers of people who are in public assistance, record number of people who are getting food stamps. And again, we don't begrudge people the ability to survive. We want to be able to do that. But at some point, consumption cannot be met with shrinking production. Government is not an engine of production. It's an engine of consumption. So the thing is, you have to now, at the point, government is bigger than it's ever been at all levels. You have to burden that. You have to carry that on top of public assistance. So it's getting untenable and unsustainable. So, yes, we want to provide services to the neediest among us. And we were able to do that before, but now you can't because government is growing too large, huge bureaucracies, and they're getting in the way of themselves. You know, I think it's dreadful. In the next few years, you're going to have to do austerity, and it's not a choice. It's either austerity or collapse. Those are your choices. If we want to continue to sustain and provide what people need, to even get by. So this is a huge problem, and Obamacare only compounds this problem. It doesn't alleviate it. We're headed for a collapse if we're not in it already, let's say. How did Eastern Europe turn itself around after its collapse and after the wall came down? How are we going to do it? Well, here's the thing. Keep in mind that there's basically two types of collapses to be potentially aware of. I have my YouTube channel. People can easily find it, Paul Mlad, and I was actually did a two-part series on economic collapse and what you would do. First of all, the most common collapse in world history, you know, in terms of the economy, has been a currency collapse. In other words, you print a currency into oblivion, it's into hyperinflation, and to the point where it's worthless. If you keep on overproducing it, then each successive unit becomes less valuable. And this is what happens in inflation. And inflation is not when goods and services 
increase in price, it's when the value of money comes down because of overproduction. So currency collapses, you can't number how often it's happened. And uh, you have historic conditions now where many, uh, if not most, of the world's major currencies are being overproduced at a rapid clip, certainly when you compare it versus what it was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. So you might have the situation that a new currency regime has to be put in place, but the economy can stay intact except for some disruption. But an economic collapse becomes even worse because you talk about destroying production, which what occurs, and you have many people then at that point hungry and dependent, and you can't fend for them, then chaos comes. So I think in some parts of the country, you're going to have economic collapse. I think in some parts of California, right now it's baked into the cake. Which one occurs, that's what we'll have to see in the next few years if we're able to pull back the horns and make things this easier to, to mitigate. David, a question for Paul? The last question I'd like to ask him is, how good is it now relative to when you guys left? I mean, you still have family there, aunts, uncles, etc. How much better is it now than it was, let's say, when you were a child and, and you left Yugoslavia? Well, here's the thing. Yugoslavia was a coercive configuration of some nation states like Croatia, Slovenia, Macedonia, etc. And the thing is, whether you clear all the imbalances and the overburdens through nonviolent means or through violent means, the slate does end up getting clean one way or the other. It could be very painful, or you could minimize the pain. And after everything settled down and the individual states came into play, the bottom line is it's better now than it certainly was back then, if you're talking about my old country or my old ex-country, because I was actually born in Croatia, which is, of course, part of Yugoslavia back then. Since that occurred and a few years of disruption and stabilization, a lot of the smaller entities cropped up and became independent. They were smaller countries, more self-sufficient, and they didn't have to deal with the burden of you know, huge communist bureaucracies which was stepping on them. And plus, because you had a chance to do profits, you know, look, in a, in a successful economy, you need profit. That's what helps the economy get back on its feet. So they became, uh, you know, a little bit more free market in its orientation, which I think is great. And a lot of other countries as well, like Estonia, etc. For us, if we navigate our way through this, you're going to have in America lots of disruptions, upheaval, and I think hyperinflation is definitely a strong possibility in the next few years. But it's going to depend how we're going to navigate it. You're going to have some pockets of America having extreme problems and chaos and, and unrest without a doubt. I think some parts of America, you can't avoid it because of what's baked into the cake right now. But I think on the other side of it, with a new regime, hopefully a currency that's tied to a limiting factor, such as gold or some standard thereof, it doesn't have to be gold, but some standard, then we could be on the other side of it and, and start to heal a few years afterwards that occurs. We still don't know how it's going to play out with the November elections in the next few years. I'm monitoring it very, very closely as I can. Well, we're competing with our benefactors in China as far as production and consumption are concerned in the United States. We're not really producing what we're consuming. Did we see a dramatic upswing in production and manufacturing in Eastern Europe as part of the success of those particular economies? I think a good example is East Germany after it took off the shackles and then helped to basically blend into West Germany and pick up the abilities to grow and produce from West Germany. Their recovery came pretty quickly, actually, within probably like two years. That was actually a, a fairly successful, you know, all things being equal, it was a fairly successful rebound for them. And I think that uh, it could very easily happen on our end as well. I'm not as hopeful about some parts of the world out there. I think there'll be problems in places ranging from Venezuela to some parts of Russia. Uh, and I think you're going to see some real problems continue with some of the countries that are like you know, Spain, Italy, and France. France just became socialist. I think they're going to have a, some horrendous problems in the next few years. And I think that's baked into the cake because of the elections. Paul, what was the take with the precious metals during the collapse in that area? In Yugoslavia? Yes. 
Well, the, the thing about that is, is that many people couldn't get their hands on precious metals because the government had strict controls on it. You know, it reminds me of Zimbabwe, if you recall. People in, in that country, they were forced to partake of their currency, and they were not allowed to access things that could be a store of value. If you had any precious metals, that better not tell the government or any, any of the uh, lawless bands that were like in its wake during social unrest. You know, I'm hopeful now with it being more of a worldwide market, that will be more of a positive influence of precious metals so people can have a store of value when their currencies are going to be uh, you know, heading into difficulties. So we'll wait and see on that as well, my friend. Well, gentlemen, it's been a great discussion today. Thank you both for joining me on the program. Thank you, Ellis. Uh, Thank I you. appreciate your program, and God bless uh, all of you. Thank you, Alice. Appreciate you taking the time to give us this opportunity to interview you on your show. I've been speaking with money, metals, and mining expert David Morgan. His website is themorganreport.com. Also joining us today was author and certified financial planner Paul Mlajenovic. Find Paul at ravingcapitalist.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Hey, it's me, cool voice guy. You should be feeling the effects of brain growth by now. Take a moment and relax. You can always catch up online at our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all the programs there, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. Today I'm visiting with Joshua Young the founder and portfolio manager of Young Capital Management. Previously, Josh served as an analyst at a multi-billion dollar single-family office in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he was an investment analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners. He was also a corporate strategy consultant at Mercer Management Consulting and Diamond Cluster. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Chicago, and Josh is one of the fund managers I see regularly when I attend corporate presentations in downtown Los Angeles. Since we spoke uh, about six weeks ago, what has your experience been with relation to oil and gas investments? Unfortunately, my uh, analogy to 2008 may have been uh, more uh, prescient than I, than I expected. Uh, stocks have been down substantially, particularly in the uh, small cap uh, oil and gas space. Oil prices are down from a high of, I think, a month ago. They were at as high as $105 a barrel, and now they've been as low as $80 a barrel recently, and and that's had a huge impact on uh, the prices of a number of different stocks in the sector. Any indication as far as consumption, uh, supply and demand issues? Well, the last time we spoke, uh, we talked a little bit about, uh, informally we talked about the Wilshire indicator, which is uh, that near your office there's a Wilshire Boulevard near the 405 freeway, and the uh, traffic on Wilshire actually is somewhat correlated with the price of oil. When uh, gas prices go above about 4 or $4.50 a gallon here in L.A., people tend to stop driving as much and traffic seems to clear up. Gas is back down and it appears that traffic is worse than ever. So obviously that's just one sort of incidental indicator, but it appears that consumption is actually not hurt as badly as you'd expect based on the $25 price uh, movement in the uh, price of oil. I think that's kind of ominous, yeah, especially during the beginning of the summer driving season with uh, such a drop in oil prices. Uh, it's ominous for our economy. It's ominous for the world. I think that's fair. I think that really everyone's kind of waiting to see what happens in Europe, and I think people are waiting to see what happens with the Fed and to see if there's another sort of round of quantitative easing. I think it's uh, going to be somewhat binary. I think if there's quantitative easing and if uh, Europe manages to... Uh, at least uh, kick the can down the road, I think you could see 
equity prices go up a lot, and I think you see oil rebound and potentially go up even more than it was at uh, earlier this year. I think if you see uh, Europe fall apart and or you see uh, limited quantitative easing in the U.S. in particular, I think you can see things get even uglier and you can see prices go down even more. And yeah, I think your, your point about there being less driving this early in the driving season, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's scary a little bit, but it seems to actually have picked up a little bit in the last month or so versus uh, when, when we spoke last. Now, we've got a lot of factors affecting the price of oil and affecting the, the dollar right now. Let's say the collapse of the euro is, is, is off in the future. The eurozone breaks up. Everyone calls Greece the big trigger here. I don't know if that's necessarily true. That just boosts the dollar, and if, if the dollar is you know, worth more compared to other currencies and or gold, specifically oil, then that in itself makes it cheaper to buy, well, oil in the world market, doesn't it? Well, honestly, I'm just going to have to defer here. I, I'm really, I'm not a macro analyst. There are brilliant hedge fund managers like Ray Dalio at Bridgewater. There are really smart people who make tons of money in currency trading and tons of money making directional bets on commodities. I prefer to just buy stocks that are incredibly cheap, that are hedged, that have good production prospects and that are low cost. And I think if you buy stocks that are cheap relative to their fundamental value, that are growing rapidly and that are growing economically, that over the long run you'll do well. And as long as those companies aren't over-levered and are able to fund their debt and fund their capital programs, even in a negative uh, economic scenario, I think in the long run I'll do well. And honestly, you know, I try to not pay too much attention to currency movements or macro price movements and commodities because I think in really the true long run, I think global economy will be fine. And I think the U.S. economy will be fine. We may have uh, structural issues, but I think those issues in the long run will get resolved. I think that the challenge as an investor is to be able to find the areas in which you have an edge and where you can add value. And I think the place that I can add value is finding small, undervalued companies, buying their stocks and finding overvalued companies and shorting them and finding other sorts of interesting trades to make. And uh, in the long run, that strategy has generated fantastic returns, and I expect it to continue to generate great returns going forward. Well, let's talk about one of those companies right now that you like, that you feel is undervalued. We've spoken about them on the program before, Gale Force Petroleum. Gale Force, since we last spoke, has made some progress. They uh, closed a financing that they were working on and closed an additional acquisition they were working on. And uh, they're in the process of blocking up that acquisition and drilling a number of wells and recompleting a number of wells. And we could actually see in the next couple of months them double their production from the start of the year. And they've reiterated that they're on track to produce over 800 barrels a day by the end of the year. And they could potentially be producing 1,000 barrels a day by early next year or even by the end of the year. And they've also reiterated their interest in potentially spinning off their production into a royalty trust. And that's important because royalty trusts are valued at over $200,000 per flowing barrel. And so there's a possibility that around the middle of next year, you could actually see them spin off a 1,000 barrel a day royalty trust at a $250 million value versus their current value of around $25 million. It's hard to find a, a producing resource company with a share price of under 50 cents. It's uh, reasonably tightly held, uh, and you seem to have found one with the Gale Force. I was brought in by the largest shareholder introduced to the company. It was just not well marketed. Ironically, they've done everything right from an operational perspective and from a corporate finance perspective. They haven't been out there. They haven't been very promotional. They've been very focused on doing things right operationally, and their thought was if they build it, they'll come. 
and you know I think over time that'll be true. But in the meantime, because they're not very promotional, the stock hasn't really run, and there's a great opportunity. I mean, I, I own a ton of stock, and I was actually looking today. I mean, I think it's extremely cheap relative to their near-term prospects. And yeah, I mean, I think the production is really exciting because I think that, especially in a low interest rate environment, given the high margins they generate in their production, there's an opportunity for them to bridge the gap of being a small producer where other small producers are also cheap. There's an opportunity for them to bridge the gap from the low valuations that small producers and small exploration companies are, are achieving to the high valuations that royalty trusts are achieving and the nature of their assets is such that they're conducive for that transition and they could potentially achieve an order of magnitude change in their valuation or more over a relatively short period of time. Would you consider increasing your position at some point? Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at it today. I didn't buy any today, but uh, I'm looking at potentially doing so in the near future. Let's talk about drilling economics for oil and gas as opposed to uh, precious metals or base metals. The numbers aren't even close, are they? Yeah, well, it's a little different. So with a gold mine, you can go and drill and spend a few million dollars drilling and end up with a billion-dollar discovery and sell it, and that's it. So with oil and gas, it's very different. You drill and you typically don't with one well create a billion dollar asset, but what you do is you create cash flow. And so with Gilforce, relative to some other oil and gas companies, their wells are actually extremely high rate of return. The wells that they're drilling now, I'd estimate, are gonna generate high double digits to low triple digit IRRs. And uh, a lot of their proved undeveloped locations also have the potential to generate triple digit IRRs, which is very exciting because if you look at what your return on invested capital is into the stock, and you look at the company's expected ROIC, ROE, all these other sort of financial efficiency measures uh, and capital efficiency measures, you should expect that they should have a very high ROE compared to a lot of their competitors and just overall as a company. And so I think one of the, the keys for Gilforce is going to be getting valued as a growth company as they transition over into being a, a yield-oriented vehicle. And I think that as they show high returns and as they show high returns combined with high growth, I think it's possible that people will start to give them a really high valuation in the market. And a lot of what they're doing, the reason they're able to generate such high returns, relatively speaking, is they're coming into areas where there's already proven oil. They're drilling in relatively shallow fields. And they know what they have. They know the field. They come into fields where there have already been multiple wells drilled through them. They hadn't been produced because the price of oil had been a lot lower when the, the area had been drilled. They had been drilled for deep gas wells, so they know the different zones that are there. They have the opportunity to come back through these existing wells and recomplete them, and they have the opportunity to come in and drill relatively shallow oil wells that are relatively highly productive. So the combination of shallow, low cost with high productivity leads to extremely high rates of return, extremely high capital efficiency, and ultimately they may actually not need too much additional outside money. They may be able to bank finance almost all of their production growth going forward. And it's a very, very powerful model. And so again, the combination of these high returns will lead to substantial cash flow and really um, attractive financial metrics, which I think, in addition to this transition over to a royalty trust, will really help capture value and will help the share price uh, increase substantially. So there's a lot less potential risk for, let's say, the retail investor if the company doesn't have to go back into the market and dilute the stock. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think they don't need to explore. 
So the, the exploration aspect of the business is de-risk and it's not really relevant, which is really exciting for a small company like that. They don't need to raise money to stay in business, so not only not for exploring, but to cover their overhead. They have enough cash flow to cover that, and they have enough cash flow to actually cover a large portion of their capital budget going forward. So they really don't need to go in and dilute like you were saying, and they also don't really need, some oil companies need $100 oil or $120 oil for their projects to be highly economic. They don't need that. At $70 oil, their projects are all highly economic. So you can really see, of course, as oil prices came down, Gale Force stock came down too because they haven't shown yet how great their fields are. I think as they show well results and as they show how economic their fields are, I think you'll see the stock reprice and be a little bit less sensitive to oil price movements because they're so economic. It really doesn't matter. I mean, obviously, there's more profit when the oil is at 80 like it is now than when it is at 70. And obviously, there's more profit at 90 than at 80, but they don't need it. And the fact that they don't need it means that the equity price should be less sensitive to short-term movements in the price of oil and more sensitive to people's estimates of the longer-term price of oil. And there seems to be more consensus that in three years or five years or whatever, that the price of oil will still be 90 or 100 or 110. Then it doesn't seem like that seems to be shifting too much. It seems like there's more a question of you know what happens to the world over the next few years through uh, what happens in Europe and China. But it still seems like the long-term picture for the world is, is pretty intact. So we can almost take the price of oil out of the equation and just look at a company that's generating revenue and invest in it according to what our belief may be about that revenue. Yeah, I mean, that's fundamentally how I look at Gilforce. I mean, it's extremely cheap. I look at it as a growth company that's trading at a discount to its liquidation value. And it's just, it's an aberration in the market. And the simple reason it's available is that the stock is relatively illiquid and the market cap is low. And they haven't been out at a lot of conferences and haven't really marketed the story. I think that as they show production growth, as they show substantial revenue and substantially increased cash flow, I think that they'll just show up on more people's tickers, they'll show up on more people's monitors, they'll show up on financial screens that people run for growing companies, they'll show up at quant funds as they're they're doing their screens, and I think you'll see just an increase in long-term fundamental holders that are looking for rapidly growing companies, and I think that that will help to, to re-rate the, the stock. And, you know, regardless of the, your view on the price of oil, unless you think oil is going to 50 or 40, which, I mean, would involve a very bleak view of the world for a long term, I think you could see Gale Force get substantially re-rated. And also, they, they have a lot of oil price hedges in place, so that even if oil went to 10, they'd have enough cash flow that they should be able to stay solvent for a period of time. So even like in the absolute bleakest, you know, Lehman Brothers times three disaster, where oil went to 35, well, multiply by three, you know, oil goes down to 10 or 12, Gale Force should still be able to survive for a little while. And again, you're a shareholder, and they're a sponsor of this program. Yeah, and uh, I, they've paid me for consulting work in the past where I've helped them with their hedging program and other stuff. But yeah, I'm a significant shareholder, and like I said, I'm looking at potentially building my position in the public markets. Josh, thank you very much for joining us today on the program. I've been chatting with Joshua Young, manager of Young Capital Management on the road not too far from home at Morton Steakhouse in downtown Los Angeles. We've been speaking about sponsor Gale Force Petroleum, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GFP. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. In this segment, I'll speak with Edward Kelly, the president of Inco One Resources, trading under the symbol IO on the TSX Venture Exchange. Inco One is a Canadian junior exploration company operating in northern Peru. Ed, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ellis. Pleasure to be on air with you. 
Now, you're doing business in Peru, which is the largest gold-producing country in South America. Why don't we know this? Well, that's a good question. I think Peru probably gets sort of overlapped with all the other metals that are being produced in South America, copper, silver, zinc, and overshadowed by Chile, probably. Why the name Inca One for your company? We decided to name the company Inca, just an Inca One, for the fact that it registers with the local people, and we wanted to be able to um, make that connection with the local people there and sort of make them feel like they're a part of the project along the way. Tell us about the Las Joaquias project, if you don't mind. Sure. Las Joaquias project, it's a project that was first prospected on, I guess, in the 70s by the Peruvian government when everything was nationalized in the country and really before modern-day exploration and mining practices took place. The country got on the map as it being a producing country. And in the 80s, the Peruvian government did a joint venture with the German government to go in and do exploration work on the Las Joaquias project. And they put in four underground tunnels did about a little bit of drilling, eight holes, 1,500 meters, and took it to what in those days would be a pre-feasibility report. Then later on, I guess in the 90s, governments changed, philosophies changed and how to be able to move ahead as an industry in the mining space. They privatized, and this project was sold off to another Canadian junior in the mid-90s. Do you consider yourself a polymetallic company? It's definitely a region that we're working in. I would say we're more of an exploration company looking for gold and silver and copper. From what I understand, the grades of gold are fairly significant, you believe? In those days, the majority of the, of the drilling was done in the, in the late 90s, 96, 97, and 98. About 6,500 meters of drilling was done by another Canadian junior. And just taking to a pre-feasibility report in the past, they came up with a historic resource based on 500 meters of strike, 20 meters width, 200 meters of depth, 6.5 million tons of ore, and an average grade of 2.09 grams per ton gold. And uh, what's interesting is it had a cutoff grade of 1.5 grams. This was done in the 90s when gold was trading about uh, 250 to $300 an ounce. Those were what the cutoff grades were being used in. Is there visible gold, silver, and copper at surface? Yes, there is some visible gold in a couple of places, and this is sort of what, I guess, led the Peruvian government to do their initial exploration work. You have to remember the Peruvian government in the 70s and 80s, when everything was nationalized, they had their pick of the litter of projects to be able to work on. And this is one of the ones they decided to do exploration work on and use their own money to further this project. And it wasn't until a uh, Canadian junior came in in the 90s to be able to give it further exploration work and do historic resource on it. I know sometimes Peru might be considered by some to be politically sensitive. Is that the case now? Uh, I think it's got that reputation. I mean, Peru, it's an, it's an awesome country. How can you not like it when it's like number six gold producer in the world, number two silver producer in the world, and I think number three copper producer in the world, and less than 1% of the country is being exploited today. It's had some work that was done in the past, again, by when it was everything was nationalized by the Peruvian government, and the projects that you see in production today are primarily from that work that was done 20 30 years ago. So there's lots of opportunity for further exploration. Very little exploration has actually been done in the country. There's the other side, too, where the communities can be a challenge, and you have to be willing to be able to invest time and money and go through the process. And sometimes it's very time-consuming. And, you know, when you've got investors at you to be able to get results and get results fast, it can be tempting to take shortcuts and 
typically when you take these shortcuts in these kinds of situations, they come back to bite you uh, down the road and in the future, and you've seen some of that with other companies that have had challenges in the past. Discuss the share structure of Inco One, Ed. This is a relatively new company, Inco One. When I first got it and restructured it and did our financing last year, we did an initial financing when we announced the acquisition of the Las Hakias project back in May of last year. We did a $2 million uh, financing, and that was to take us until we got our permits, which we're very close to getting. We've got currently 22 million shares outstanding, fully diluted, 27 million, and 43% are owned by insiders and management, including myself. When do you think the drills will get into the ground so you can further identify the resource? Well, there is a number of things that you have to do uh, in Peru, a number of steps, baseline studies, including social, economic, environmental baseline studies. You need to be able to take all that information and present it to the community, which we're doing at the end of this month. We've got a date planned to be able to do that. And uh, once you've done that, you can then apply for your drilling permit, which takes anywhere between 7 to 45 days. So we're looking at probably somewhere at the worst case scenario in August, getting our drilling permit given to us. We plan to get the drills in the ground shortly after that, and basically, I guess you could say we'll have results somewhere in Q3. Where do you see the company headed in 12 to 16 months? I would expect that we've got our uh, phase one drilling program completed, which would be to go in and firm up the historic resource to a 43101 compliant resource, and then go along the strike once, uh, I guess, it's about 2.2 kilometers long. Only 500 meters of it has been drilled on, and we want to step out and go along that remaining 1.7 kilometers long strike and firm up what we've got potentially there. Give us a snapshot of your background, if you don't mind, Ed. Basically, I've been involved with public companies, I guess, now for about eight years. I'm involved in, on the board of directors on four other mining companies. been involved in the mining space for about three years. Primarily, I guess you could say I'm a serial entrepreneur, getting involved with companies that have been, I guess, say, need restructuring, restructure them, take them to a certain level and either sell them or hand them off to more experienced management to take them to the next level. So is there an exit strategy for Inca One? Well, I don't think it's any surprise. We're not a producing company. We're a junior resource company. We're looking for value that have assets in the ground that are undervalued, and then finding out the problems with them, solving those problems, unlocking shareholder value, and taking it to the next level. And there's lots of opportunity out there right now. Why should we consider Inca One over the many other junior exploration companies trading today? There's a few items you have to checklist that you have to look at. One is share structure. We've already talked about that, and we've got a very uh, an excellent share structure. Two is the project that you're working with. And uh, again, we've got a project here that got baked in success already. It's had some challenges in the past, but we believe that we've put systems in place to be able to solve those and make it a win-win for the communities, investors, and ourselves. Thirdly, I guess it comes down to experience management. We've got a number of people that are working with us from a win that we've had in the past with Norismont. Investors have uh, supported us from Norismont in the past after it was acquired by HUD Bay, as well as uh, employees that worked with Norismont. We've got, for example, our chief geologist, Tom Hendrickson. He was the chief geologist for Norismont in the past. Caddy Vargas is our general manager in Peru. She worked with Norismont in the past. So we've got a number of solid people that are working with us that have experience working in Peru for a number of years. So it's as if you had a Norismont mining management team and they had a successful takeover a few years ago. 
That's exactly what it is, yeah. What is your relationship with the people in the government of Peru? How have you found your experience to be, Ed? Uh, our experience has been nothing but positive. The central government is fully committed to being able to get social issues worked through. Peru is a mining country, and uh, without mining, they haven't got a lot other than some agriculture going uh, at this moment and tourism. So they realize that over 70% of their exports are uh, to do with minerals, and they have to keep that going. Otherwise, you know, their economy is going to stumble. We've met with local government as well and stakeholders. We've identified through our baseline studies that over 90% of our surface landholders are coffee farmers. I happen to have a past working in coffee and past experience working in the coffee industry and was able to meet with the local stakeholders, address their concerns and issues around coffee, and be able to identify that they've got some challenges there. And We think we've put a great sustainability program in place where, uh, on average, the stakeholders are only getting about 25% of the potential yield that they should be getting. So we're working with the local coffee co-ops there to be able to go in and train up to 800 families to better farming initiatives and be able to double and triple their yields on their coffee farms as in support of them giving us for exploration rights on the surface lands. Ed, thanks very much for joining me today on the program. I appreciate your being here. Well, thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity to tell the story on Inca One. I've been speaking with Edward Kelly, the president of Inca One Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol IO. Their website is IncaOne.com. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Contact our sponsor companies directly. They're on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, and I'm going to give you some unsolicited advice. We may be heading into a time period of continued economic stress and potential collapse. There's always a chance that, for some unknown reason that I'm not aware of, nor anyone else for that matter, that we could, by some miracle, see an economic boom during the next year, or two, or five, or ten. I don't think so, but... Anything is possible. Let's prepare for our own austerity. Perhaps your financial assets are diversified into a variety of venues discussed on this program previously. I will not suggest you buy or invest in anything in particular. I won't suggest that you sell any of these financial assets or liquidate them necessarily. You've heard the pitch about gold and silver bullion, and you've heard the pitch about stocks and ETFs, commodities hard and soft. I'm not pitching any of that right now. What I'm going to suggest to you is much simpler and safer than investing in the typical things we talk about here or what you may run into by following other pundits or journalists, advisors, or pitchmen. I'm suggesting now that you stop using your credit cards for long-term debt. If you can pay down or pay off any remaining balances, do so. Use these cards if you must, but pay them off each month as you do, completely if you can as if each one was an American Express card. Using these cards for business expenses or to get travel points or purchase points is fine. But pay your balances down and pay these cards off if you can. If you can't afford to buy something otherwise, do not do it. For an indefinite time period, and I don't see any change in the near future, cash will always be cash, and the way we buy and sell what we need, cash is the tool. Only buy what you need. Convert whatever you don't need that you may own into cash and keep it. Look around. Take an inventory of what you have and have a metaphorical sale of sorts. A flea market sale. A garage sale. 
get rid of everything you don't need and don't use. And forget about buying new gadgets and toys. There's no intrinsic long-term value in that. You can't eat it down the road and you can't pay bills with it. Liquidate, protect your stash of cash. Times may get tougher. I'm an optimist and I hope and believe that the best is always possible. But if tougher times are on the horizon, there's no harm in being ready, being prepared. Consolidate, liquidate, and prepare. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Remember, kids, invest at your own risk. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.